Well, no better place to be than here at Men's Bible Study, studying the Bible, kicking off a brand new year in the book of James. And James is a great book that I think you are going to glean a lot from, and I hope that you might consider even tonight committing to being a part of this. Uh, it's an important book. It's a helpful book. It's a helpful book that I trust will make a difference in your life. <clears throat> but first, a quiz. Who's this guy? Martin Luther. And what doctrine did he uh, uncover and restore for the church? There, I'll give you a hint. Justification by faith alone. Fantastic. Well, you're going to get to study this this year. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So there you go. Let's drop that little paradoxical bomb on you right there. As a matter of fact, he makes a big point of this. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And I hope that maybe you've been around the block enough in the Christian life to think, okay, I, I, I know something of the way that these concepts fit together. Uh, but there's so much of this book that is going to require that you keep this in mind and that you don't lose the tension between these two statements that we are justified by faith alone, and yet we are justified by works and not by faith alone. What in the world are we talking about? Well, one thing he's concerned about in this book, of course, James chapter 2, verse 19, is that even the demons believe, pastuo, same word translated faith. They have faith, right? And, and they shudder. Right? The faith doesn't save them, of course. As a matter of fact, you want to think about demons for a minute. There was a man with an unclean spirit, a demon. He cried out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know that you are the Holy One of God. I know that. I know that the incarnate Son of God is the Holy One, the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. Here you are right before me. They have good theology, those uh, demons. They believe God. They believe that there is a God who has sent His Son to redeem the world. They believe all of those doctrinal facts. As a matter of fact, a lot of people believe that. A lot of people get stirred and emotionally uh, tied up in saying, I am all about that. I believe in Jesus. Uh, matter of fact, somebody goes down on the field and everyone you see there, they think he's dropped dead on the field. Everyone's going to pray. Everyone's going to reach out to God. They're going to ask God for help in the midst of their troubles. We have a lot of people that uh, would say, yes, I am right with God because I believe in God. I believe in Christ. And of course, the book of James is here to press the point from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 5 to say, let's rethink this whole thing about how one is saved. Because the problem with recovering the doctrine of justification by faith alone is that people go, oh, I like that. That's great. Don't talk to me then about works. And if you do, make sure that you put it in a very optional format for me so that I know I can just go through this thing called Christianity and come to a place where I just know if I've checked a box putting my trust uh, in Christ, as some people would admit, I I'm, I'm good to go. I'm fine with all of that. Matter of fact, back to one of my favorite theologians, Keith Green, uh, in the little pamphlets that he used to put out. If you're back in the day, you know who Keith Green is. Uh, I love this comic, never forgot it, cut it out, tried to find it on the internet, can't find it, had to scan it for you. Uh, but here is a bit of what has happened to justification by faith alone in Protestant circles, right? We just are going to get people through this, pray a prayer, put their trust in Christ, and then they can go about their life. And I love this comic in the same pamphlet that the Keith Green Last Days Ministries puts out. Uh, I can 
can know that God looks at me now as a righteous person. And I love the little book there, if you can read it, uh, How to Do Your Own Thing in the Center of God's Will. (laughs) Uh, I want to be able to think I'm loved by God. My picture is on his refrigerator. He loves me. He accepts me because I believe in the Protestant doctrine of justification by faith alone. And if I believe in that, and I know that God has sent his son to save me, and if I've prayed a prayer, and if I'm in trouble or see a football player drop dead next to me, I can sit down and pray because I am a child of God. I trust in God. I'm all about believing in God. And yet when they commit sin, sometimes they have a great bit of sorrow. Just to share my third favorite cartoon from that series, uh, here's Pastor Disaster uh, that is sharing with this guy, listen, I know you're saved. I, it doesn't matter what you've done, and you might be experiencing some guilt, but I, I, I get you. I've led you in the prayer myself. You're fine. You're good. Uh, we've got to figure this out. When it comes to our doctrine of justification by faith alone, do you think Mike Fabares believes that doctrine? Absolutely, 100%. I would die for the truth that we are saved right, by grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Believe that 100%. But I also understand this tension that James is going to flesh out for us through this semester, that we have to strive for peace with everyone and, supply the verb again, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And that throws people for a loop because they like to say, I am over here believing in justification by faith alone, not by works and If you drop this verse on me, you won't find it in the bookstore on any plaques. We're justified by works, not by faith alone. But we struggle with that. We shouldn't struggle with that. We should understand how this works. And so we're going to get in throughout this semester to all the things that the book of James is saying. This is non-optional. This is what God expects from you. And it's all going to lead us back to the doctrine of sanctification. So I want to talk about the concept of sanctification. Lay a groundwork tonight for your verse-by-verse study through this book. And I want us to think through this biblically. So a little Bible study tonight, a little doctrinal study about what it means to engage in this thing called sanctification. We use that word in our English vocabulary, sanctified, uh, sanctification, sanctify, and I just want to talk about the words for a second. In the Old Testament, you'll find the word translated into our English Bibles. Uh, Kadosh is a word that you find in the Old Testament. It is translated a variety of ways, holiness, dedicated, sanctified, set apart, uh, prepared, keeping, consecrate, all of these words that relate to, if you wanted to write that down, kadosh, not that you're going to be reusing that word in any conversations this week, but the Old Testament word translated in a number of English ways, but that's the word that does translate into the English word sanctify, sanctified, or sanctification. Uh, the New Testament word, hagiadzo, uh, this is the verbal form of the word holy, uh, but it is translated in a variety of ways. Hagiadzo is translated uh, sanctified, holy, sacred, hallowed, consecrated consecrated, set, as in being set apart or set over here, set away from the others. So these two words you can see are uh, related to our English word sanctify, and that all comes through the Latin word sanctus. Now that was, the, by the way, the Bible of the church for a thousand years, the, the Jerome's translation of the Bible into Latin, because of course all the theological thinking moved out west uh, in the early centuries of the church by the third century, and uh, they were all reading out of the, uh, the Latin Bible. And uh, the word that translated, either kadosh or, or hagiadzo, often ended up in the Latin text sanctus, in the various forms of sanctus. 
And that made its way into English. So the English derivatives of that word, uh, we get words like sanctuary, uh, or even we think about the temple. We have a, uh, a holy place, but then we have a holy of holies, an inner sanctum, a sanctum of the sanctuary. And that's a place where you're not going to play racquetball and you're not going to play you know, pickleball. This is set apart for something very unique. God sets his name in Jerusalem, and this temple represents him, and that's a very special place. You don't go into it except the high priest once a year, and it is set apart, the English derivative uh, of the word sanctus. Uh, the usage of the word in the Bible, first of all, is, is most profoundly about God. God is set apart. What does that mean? He's not like any of the others. Theological word for this, he is transcendent. He's not like us, right? He's like us in the sense that we're made in his image, but he's not like us in that he's very different in, in that he is in a category by himself. We're the creatures, he's the creator. And the distinction and distance between us as creatures and God, even though we may be the pinnacle of his creation, is the same distance because it's infinite. There are two categories that are completely distinct as it would be in trying to measure the difference between God's value and a cockroach, right? So the reality is God is set apart from everything that he's made. He's in a category by himself. And of course, when we think about that, it's not just ontologically who he is as a being, but we say, well, of course he's set apart in the sense that he is set apart from sin. That's probably what you think of when you think about the seraphim flying around in Isaiah 6 saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? He's, he's apart from all the other creation because everything else is stained by sin and he is not. He's set apart from the problem of falling short. He never falls short. He always fulfills his plan. He always fulfills his moral standard. He is perfect in that regard, and we would use the word holy, sanctus, hagios, kadosh. Those are the, the words that we would use about uh, God being set apart. It's also used about things, right? I even described the sanctuary. The sanctuary or the inner sanctum is used for a specific reason. It is set apart for just that special use. That's, by the way, if you grew up in a church like I did, where the auditorium was called a sanctuary, uh, I wouldn't call it that. Certainly, we don't have a sanctuary because if you know anybody in the facilities crew, they'll tell you they tear it down and we use it in a million different ways. <laughs> if it were used for one thing only, you could call it a sanctuary. Uh, we call it an auditorium. Uh, it's our church building. Sometimes it's a place for, you know, women's teas or the coffees or uh, the kids put inflatables in there. They have jousting. I mean, all kinds of things happen in that building. So it's not sp set apart for a special use. If it were, I suppose you could call it a sanctuary, but I wouldn't want to confuse it with the sanctuary of the Old Testament. So we don't call it that around here. Um, set apart from ordinary use. Uh, there are things in the temple like a lampstand. There is bread. There is uh, uh, incense. There's even a oil that is used to anoint the priests and the kings. It's not used for anything else. Matter of fact, God says you will be killed if you take the special ingredients that's used to, to, to uh, anoint a king or a prophet or a priest if you use it for anything else. So it's a word that describes it's set apart from ordinary use. You can't use it for anything but for the use that God has ordained it to be used for. And then, of course, it's used of people. 
uh, people that are set apart for God. Uh, I don't live for myself. I don't live for the world. I don't live for my wife. I don't live for my kids. I live for God. I'm set apart for God. I do what God wants, and He does want me to love my kids and love my wife and be involved in lots of things, but I'm supposed to even, as Colossians says, be doing my job every day uh, for God. And we say, that's a person that's a Christian. He's set apart for God. Uh, that's what he does. And of course, we would say if he's set apart from God, then he's not engaged in all the garbage that the non-Christians are engaged in. So he's set apart from that falling short. Not in every way, not perfectly, but you don't live like the rest of the world. So you are set apart from their, their moral failings, right? Not perfectly, but increasingly so, as we'll see. So sanctify, sanctified, sanctification. James is going to talk all about this. Every command in the book of James has got to be seen in light of our sanctification. Now, we've got to look at that in a couple ways. Number one, we've got to think through it in terms of positional sanctification, to be set apart for God. Okay, now let's think this through. This is the result of justification. Okay, when we use the word justification, like Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses on the Wittenberg door and saying, we believe that you are justified by faith alone, which is eventually how this got fleshed out in our terminology, we're saying that the moment you put your trust in Christ, right, you are set apart for God. Look at how it's put here when we use the word uh, hagiadzo, translated in this passage, as you'll see, uh, sanctified. Uh, that's a one-time Set apart positionally at the moment of your justification. Acts 26, 18. Uh, this is the prayer here, right? that God is setting Paul apart to open their eyes, people, non-Christians, that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins right, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You see how that works? Here's someone becoming a Christian. That's the best description you could have of it. Turning from darkness to light, power of Satan to God, receiving forgiveness of sins, and then what? They become a part of this team. They get set apart as a child of God. Now they're gods. Right? The thief on the cross right, never went to church, never joined a church, never gave money to, to the offering, uh, never um, you know, went out door-to-door evangelizing, never did any of those things, never sat there and pondered his, his uh, thought life about what do I need to do in terms of thinking biblically. He became a Christian and set apart as a person who was qualified to enter into paradise that, that, way, that day, as Jesus put it, uh, all at the moment of his conversion, because God said, now you're mine. Today you'll be with me in paradise. So he, he positionally set apart, right? Set apart positionally. And we would say that's setting apart. That's the great use of the word hagios, right? To, to be set apart or hagiazo, the verb, uh, to be sanctified. And that's a great way to use the word. Uh, it's something that God does. God is doing this work. We would say, if you're into this whole um, fleshing out of the Reformation, uh, articulation of the faith. This is a monergistic, if you know that word, a monergistic act of God. Mono, alone, right? Ergos, the Greek word for work. Uh, God alone does the work. God sets someone apart. I can't set myself apart judicially, forensically, to use the words of, of, of Luther. I can't be someone who somehow says, I want to be on God's team, so I'm going to do that. Uh, the result of justification would be my positional set-apartness, and that's happening because God is doing it. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, for we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief 
in truth. Now, who did it? God did it. God worked it. God did it. God accomplished it. God provided the means for it. And God says, now you're my child. Just like Jesus dying on the cross can look to the thief on the cross and say, today you're on my team. Instantaneously, you didn't do what Peter, James, and John did, leaving their nets behind. You didn't do an evangelism from village to village. You're today mine because of your transfer of trust to me. And it's all something I'm doing. I'm doing for you. I'm gifting this to you. And the triune God accomplishes that, this positional sanctification. It's something that God does alone. If you want to put that into words that work in the conversation, this is a monergistic act of God. How many times does it happen? One time. If it's going to happen for an individual, it happens one time. Hebrews 10.10. And by that, we have been sanctified. One time, completed, perfect tense. It's done through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Christ dies once for all, and we are set apart and sanctified once for all. That helps the Nazarene doctrine and a lot of other doctrines out there. They're going to say somehow we uh, get in, we get out, we get sanctified, we get unsanctified. When it comes to positional sanctification, which you can put an equal sign next to that, that means the result of justification. It is a It is a description of someone being made right with God at the moment of their conversion. This is something that God does, and it happens once per individual, if they're Christians. It's a result, uh, I'm sorry, and it's the resultant title. It becomes the title for people who are set apart. This should not be confused with the Roman Catholic doctrine of canonizing individuals who were especially holy. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. As you know, the book of 1 Corinthians is filled with problems in the church. They have all kinds of issues going on in the church that are less than perfect. And yet here's what God says to these Christians. Uh, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours. So the moment your, your Savior becomes your Savior and the Lord that you're calling out to, to quote Romans 10, right? you call out to the Lord and, and all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. They're set apart. And so what's the title? They're, they're called saints. Right? They're called to be saints, just like everyone else who calls on the name of the Lord. So you can see where the Latin word, if you were to look at the Greek New Testament, you'd see the word hagios. Right? The, the point is, the noun is, now you become, uh, you were hagiodzoed, put into Christ, and now you're given the title, right? Hag, uh, hagios, which means I am a saint, I'm a holy one. And, and all of that is positional. It's all a, a state of being set apart. To God. You see it everywhere. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 21. Greet every saint uh, in Christ Jesus with the brothers, uh, the brothers who are with uh, me greet you. The saint. You see that in the New Testament. And, and of course, if you're not familiar with this, the Roman Catholic Church takes a group of people, if they meet a particular criteria and they say you can be canonized or, or by the act and, and work of the church, you can be made a special class of people. And then the the, the, the Catholics will, Roman Catholics will say, well, we can pray now to the saints because they're in a special category. And what we would say is, now, that's not a great word to separate the Christians into saints and non-saints, right? All Christians are saints because all Christians have been set apart, right, by faith alone in Christ and positionally sanctified. Does that make sense? All right. Now, whole different category here. The same word is used in a different context. And instead of positional sanctification, we need to call this progressive sanctification. To be set apart from sin in my practice, in my behavior. Now, we've got to take these, these theories, these 
components of theories that are misleading about the concept. And let me just give you a few. We can come up with plenty of them. Uh, but let's start with one that you're, you're most familiar with, right? Uh, your good works uh, will save you. When Paul is dealing with the problem of people believing that they can work their way into a sanctified position, positional sanctification, as a Christian, right? Like the thief on the cross, I wonder what I can do to make him a Christian. What path can I give him to be made a child of God? He's going to say, no, you can't, right? You are, you are justified by faith alone. And, and, and that is something that is clear, right? You're saved by grace through faith. It, it's not by works, right? It's not of yourself. It's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. So the idea is there's no working your way into this, right? And there is a different kind of uh, belief in Pentecostalism, Keswickianism, second blessing theology. You can find it in Wesleyanism, that there's a second tier blessing that leads you into a kind of Christianity 2.0. And it's much like you would see within the history of, of Catholicism, as they interpret church history, that there are people that live that were normal Christians and then there were saints. Uh, this is shrunk down into the Christian life, that you can become a Christian and then at some second point of blessing, you become a, a saint. Now, they wouldn't always use that terminology, but they would say, you've received the second blessing, and now you're in, I just call it, uh, you know, tongue-in-cheek, Christianity 2.0. You become the varsity Christian, and now you're in a special category. So they feel like, okay, instead of just a progressive being set apart from sin in my behavior, some would say, well, you got to do that before you can get the category of being set apart positionally. You can't become a Christian until you work your way into it. That's, that's error number one. Error number two, uh, you will go along seeking a second blessing, and then bam, it will be as though you're sanctified in this major way overnight. And a lot of people in Christianity, even in conservative Protestant Christianity, taught this theory of this uh, second tier Christianity. Sometimes maybe you probably grew up with it more than you think. Some of you, uh, this um, Schaeferism where you would, uh, you would be a, a Christian who is carnal and fleshly until you become a disciple. And when you're a disciple, then that, that word represents the Christianity 2.0. You become a, a, a real Christian in the sense that you're really now bearing fruit. Pentecostalism would say this, until you are baptized by the Spirit, you can be a Christian before that, and then when you do, you start speaking in tongues, which is evidence of the Spirit of God baptizing you, and now you are, as the Pentecostal uh, doctrinal statement would say, you're worthy to work and to witness and to worship uh, in a way that is acceptable to God. Before that, you're just a lowly 1.0 Christian. So there's lots of theories that are related to that, and that's not what we're talking about in terms of progressive sanctification that James is going to present to us. Or some would say, speaking of Wesleyanism, uh, perfectionism it's called, is there's the doctrine that you can become sinless, that you get to the place where you no longer sin at all. You reach a place of practical uh, holiness in every way. Uh, I shouldn't I need to say much about that. I'm, hopefully you're all... Uh, looking in the mirror of God's word every day saying, well, that, that doesn't seem to be true. And you know people, enough people to know that that's not, not true. Which, yeah, if you say you're without sin, you're a liar, and that's not just talking to the Christianity 1.0 people. Or you can love the Puritan, you know, you love the Valley of Vision, you, you read the Puritans, and you just love the times when they're just bagging on themselves so hard, and I call it, you know, you'll always be a no-good worm. And that you as a Christian, you just need to remember what a lowly rat of a, of a person you are, and that's the way you're going to live your whole Christian life. 
Now, is there a sense in which you should understand your sin to be heinous and, and repent of it and read those Puritan prayers and think, man, I feel that, I sense that? Sure, of course. But if you have this no good, rotten, awful, I'm a, a lowly, uh, unacceptable worm before God, then you won't understand what the New Testament teaches about pleasing God more and more, about progressive sanctification. So I'm just giving you a few examples of the misleading theories, or at least components of them, that will really not comport with what the Bible says regarding progressive sanctification, more on progressive sanctification. The realities, the component realities of it that we're going to see throughout the book of James. Number one, uh, it's going to take, and this is going to be a problem for many authors that write for Crossway and many people that have their conferences out there, they're going to say, well, we don't like this. Uh, and that is that, that, that you're going to teach in the book of James, for instance, that this is going to take effort, personal effort. And we're going to say, absolutely it is. So much in the Bible about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that uh, in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? We had our trot the turkey off or trot off the turkey. What do you call it? I, I get it wrong. It's one of those two, right? Did I get it right in one of those statements? Yeah. Um, who won that, Pastor Kellen? It wasn't a race. That's what they kept saying, but there's not a man in this room that believes that for a second. Doesn't matter who won, but the point is only one guy won. Who was it? Was it Francisco? Figures. I tell you, worse than Chris Francisco winning it is one of the Holly kids winning it, who's probably like, I don't know, 12, right? But did your son win? It wasn't a race. Yes. Yeah. He's 16? Okay. Well, he runs like a cheetah, that kid of yours. But the point is this. Well, let's just talk about Holly's kid for a second. Holly goes to these uh, competitions, and it's not like this isn't a race. It's a race, right? And, and your son wants to win, I'm assuming, uh, because you've taught him. That's the whole point of a race. And all I'm telling you, if you say to your son, hey, son, you're a runner. You're made like a cheetah. I want you to go out there and run. If you say, I want you to win, here's the thing you are implicitly saying. This is going to be work. Right? Like one of the Holly kids was tossing his cookies on the trot the turkey off. I heard. Is that true? That was the other kid, right? Trying to be like his brother. He starts barfing on the, on the, on the trot the turkey off. But the point is, why, did, why was he barfing? Who knows the technical answer to that. But he was barfing because he was working hard at this. He was working so hard he wanted to, to win. And, and, and he's, so he's working. And, and the point of sanctification, if you're even going to compare it to racing, I don't want to race. Anyone want to race tonight? We, some Holly's kids do. Chris Francisco does. The rest of us, we'd have to, t we'd have to gear up for that. Why? Because it's work. Right? Do you not know that all the, 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 that are in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Run that you may win, which means you're going to have to work harder than the next guy. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. That's to say no to stuff. They do it to receive a perishable read, uh, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. Verse 27, I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I got to work, work, work. Now that's a component that we're going to see throughout the New Testament and particularly in the book of James. And we're going to go, oh, that's not sin. That's not wrong. And you're going to have several people that are going to write books saying, oh, that's not right. That's not the way it works. That is the way it works. All throughout the New Testament, this is the way it works. 
1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You cannot pile up more words that should give you the idea of work than that. It's work. It's labor. It's hard. And you're supposed to always be abounding in it, not putting your toe in it. So personal effort is a huge reality uh, as it relates to progressive sanctification. One more, Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not uh, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So much on this. We have 1 Peter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Make every effort, be holy in all your conduct, abound in the work of the Lord. Uh, there's so many passages we could look at to emphasize the fact that biblical um, sanctification, progressive sanctification is going to be work. It's a race. It's like an athlete. going to be hard. All right. God's active involvement. Okay. God's active involvement is another ingredient of biblical progressive sanctification. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, which comes, guess what, after Philippians 2, 12, which said, work out your salvation, now says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If I tell a holly kid, go out there, work right now, and run, uh, and then I say, you know, but the Cheerios that you ate for breakfast, <laughs> this is not a good analogy, in other words, we pictured him throwing up, but uh, they're working in you to get you through, they're turning your, your, your blood sugar and your oxygen into energy and muscles are moving, and so go, and you've been fueled, now go. We would say, okay, Holly's making the decision to run and to work, right, but uh, there's fuel in him that is making him run. If he didn't eat, right? If he doesn't have food, if he hasn't eaten or drink, drank anything for, for weeks, the guy's not going to be able to do this. So the Bible says it's God that is working within us. If I said, oh, let's focus on God working in us, well, then I don't have to run. We'd say, no, no, that's not right. God is at work in you. You work. You work. God is at work in you. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, we proclaim him warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He says, for this I toil. I'm working to disciple people and build them up, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Do you see both components of that in that text? So I'm working and God is working. Now, Positional sanctification, I gave you that word that connects to that theological concept. We call it monergism. Mono, right? Jism, work, or ergos, monergism, ergism. This, we would say, is synergism, synergistic. Here's, here's what I'm going to teach. My doctrine, which I believe is the historic Christian doctrine, that sanctification that is positional or justification is monergistic and progressive sanctification is synergistic, which means that you are going to have to work. You work at this, God works within you. Synergistic, sin, both him and I, S-Y-N, not S-I-N, synergism. Synergism is he's working, I'm working, I'm working, he's working. How do I get saved? Monergism, God is working and he works upon me, he saves me, puts me into his family. Now he's saying work, labor, strive. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Uh, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are a variety of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, right? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I got gifts, and I'm going to put those to work in service, and I'm going to get involved in activity and do those things, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. 
So God is at work in us, but we are working, we're active, we're employing our gifts and getting the stuff done that God has gifted us and called us to do. Synergism. But we would say, what's the biblical reality? I work, God is actively involved in that work. It's going to take you the whole life, right? I don't believe in perfectionism. I don't believe in Christianity 2.0. I'm not Keswickian. I'm not Pentecostal. I believe that this path of sanctification is going to last for, for the remainder of your life. Why? Because you're stuck in a fallen body that has fallen impulses. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. When does the flesh stop waging war against my soul? When it's dead. So until then, I'm going to be fighting, and it's going to be a fight from beginning to end. Romans chapter 8, verse 23. But not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now we're born again. We have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. Our heart of stone is turned to a heart of flesh. We groan inwardly. Why, is it, why are you groaning? Right? Because it's hard. It's a battle. As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, what are we waiting for? The redemption of the body. My heart has been redeemed. God has made me new. Old things within me, right? Pass away. New things come. But now I'm constantly tempted, not just from an external tempter, I'm tempted from within myself, my own passions and desires. And we'll see that in the book of James. And it is a battle. How long is it going to last? Until my body stops fighting me. And when's my body going to stop fighting me? When I'm transformed in the likeness of his son, which is going to take place, 1 John chapter 3, when I see him. When I see him, I'll be like him because I'm going to see him as he is. And what I am, right, is, is not what I will be. And that's the whole point of that section there, the first part of 1 John chapter 3. So, can you ever relax? Can you ever think you've arrived? You can't think you've arrived. If you think you've arrived, I guarantee you God has, God has got you as, uh, on a shelf and you are... Um, got, Satan has won the battle if you think you've arrived, right? Let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall because I guarantee you, you will fall or you have fallen and you don't even know you've fallen because you think this doesn't take any effort and you've arrived. Biblical realities, number four, it's an advancing trajectory. This should be, you should be making progress. And sometimes I get it. It feels like two steps forward and one step back. But Romans chapter 6, verse 19 gives me this sense of constant forward progress, right? Not that every single step is in the right direction, but I'm making progress toward the, toward the gold line. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 19. For just as you once presented your members, parts of your body, as slaves to impurity. It was like, that's what you did. I'm all about that, all about myself, doing what I want, which is not pure. It's what... I think is, is, is gratifying. God's got a law and I'm breaking it. And I'm increasing in my lawlessness, right? To lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. Well, now he flips this over. Now I'm supposed to present the members of my body here, my members, the parts of who I am, as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. I just want you to see the contrasting parallelism there. Sanctification is equated with in a direction that's different than lawlessness going into increasing lawlessness. The other side of it is, no, you become a Christian and you're sanctified and you're led now to increasing progressive sanctification more and more. So we should be seeing progress. That's the normal Christian life. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. So we're supposed to be increasingly 
conformed. Now, one day we'll be positionally and completely conformed when our bodies are redeemed. But until then, we're in this process, as 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, where we all now, this picture of Moses seeing God and having his face shining, the pictures we don't have a veil on, we're beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image. We're going to look more and more like God from one degree of glory to another. We'll reflect more of his holiness, more of his glory, more of his kindness, more of his patience, more of his self-control. Uh, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. There's the synergistic part of this. I keep working, I keep striving, I keep seeking, I keep putting my focus back on Christ, and I become more and more Christ-like. That's the picture of an advancing trajectory. Progressive sanctification and advancing trajectory. The means, that's why you're here. I hope you're here to study the Bible throughout this semester, and that's the means. Sanctify them. There's our word, sanctus, right? Hagiadzo. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. How do I become more and more set apart to be like God? Well, if I'm going to be Christ-like, I need God's truth. And that is now, thankfully, codified both Old and New Testament in written form. Uh, prayer. i got to be involved in prayer. Here is another translation of this word. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. I set myself apart. That's the idea. Sahagiadzo. So that they also might be sanctified in truth. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He is praying for the sanctification of his people. So I know Christ's own intercession for us, his praying for us, is part of that. And so we should be praying. In particular, we should be praying for each other. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. So I'm, only, I'm not only praying for myself, right? But I'm going to be praying for others, but I'm praying for myself. I should mention it that way. I should state it that way. Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. I'm going to stay focused on this. I'm going to keep my first love. I'm going to maintain this. I'm going to, I'm going to work. I'm going to run. And this takes the effort. Um, fellowship, praying for each other, right? That, that's where I was trying to go in my head. I got ahead of myself. Colossians 4.12. Epaphras said, um, or Paul says of Epaphras, Epaphras, who is one of you? He's from Colossae. A servant of Christ Jesus greets you. He's always struggling in, on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. Maturity, progressing, progressive sanctification, and here is Epaphras praying for these people in Colossae. Um, well, when you fellowship, you do more than pray for each other. You direct and correct each other. That's why small group discussions are so important. And we get involved in, as this passage says, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, we exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And you're going to take a brother in Christ and hold him by the collar and say, wait a minute, it looks like you're sliding into this. You shouldn't be sliding. It's deceiving you. You're, you're moving in the wrong direction. And, and as we do that with each other, and as we, we get involved in each other's lives, that's a means of our sanctification. Uh, we encourage each other. We not only pull people out of a pathway of sin, we're also building each other up. They do the right thing. They pray. They share their faith with a coworker. We're like, yeah, that's good. You ought to do that. We are, the great word, parakaleo. We come alongside of each other, and we help hold each other up in the process of doing what is right. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, neglect, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Oh, so good. Uh, God's discipline. And let me go back to this real quick. Uh, I've watched people, just had a conversation about this, leave a good church, right, including ours, which I hope is a good church. We're improving, I, I hope. As these people leave, they, they, they go and 
They, they cash in their church and their family for a cheaper rent and bigger house or a bigger yard or ATVs or whatever, and they go away. And they get away from the fellowship. They get away from the preaching of God's word, as the, as the old reformers would say. The means of grace to build us up, they get away from that. They're not in small groups. They don't pray with each other. They don't have a place that's preaching the word that stings, right? And so what happens to their faith, right? They, these guys grow cold. You watch their, their sanctification implode. Um, they, we need each other. We need this. That's just a, a, a real emphasis, if I can, to get you to make sure you're a part of what is going on here in men's Bible study. God's discipline. Not only do Christians pull us by the neck, God sometimes takes us by the neck and shoves our face in the ground to say, hey, you're doing the wrong thing. Uh, our parents, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, our fathers did, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness, right? Share in his holiness, that increasing set-apartness. That's the word, hagiadzo, holiness. This is the noun form, hagios, to be holy. And so discipline is a means of that. Uh, trials are a means of that. James chapter 1, we're going to get into that next week. Uh, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet various trials or meet trials of various kinds. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness has its full effect that you may be teleos, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You continue to grow in, in, in your Christ-likeness, painful trials. All right. Um, you got all that? That's a lot. All right. I, it sounds like legalism to me. I, I like the drive-through save-o-matic line. Um, I, I like um, thinking that I'm okay, I'm accepted because I'm a child of God and he sees Christ and, you know, it's all right. It doesn't, if you start talking about do, 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 right, then you're a legalist. Um, some word confusion here. You, you cannot study the book of James. This is what I'm trying to say. You cannot study the book of James if you take it seriously and then you turn to each other and say, this guys is what we need to do without someone eventually throwing a flag and saying, you're a legalist. So I, want to, I just want to deal with that. Number one, the word. Do you know if I said turn to the passage that talks about legalism, you couldn't find one that uses the word legalism. Uh, the closest we get uh, is in Philippians. I don't even know if I put it on the PowerPoint. I didn't. Um, or maybe I did. No, I didn't. Um, when Paul talks about him excelling as a Pharisee in the eyes of these other guys that he was trying to outdo, he is... Um, talking about, and some translations call it legalistic righteousness. Um, so this is not a word that's even used in the Bible, not that there's not a concept. The concept is this. The first one is legalism. If you're going to put a label on it, some people use the word legalism to describe becoming a Christian by works, earning our salvation. And if you're saying, yeah, I believe that if you do these good things that we're talking about in men's Bible study in James, then you can become a Christian. Right? If you say, I'm going to understand this word, this phrase, you are justified by works and not by faith alone. And what that means is you've got to do good works so you can become a Christian. Then we all should say heresy. We believe what the truth of the book of Romans says. You do not become a Christian by good works. So Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So if someone says legalism at that church, which we're accused of constantly, Compass Bible Church is a legalistic church. And when they say that, if they mean, oh, you guys think that you can be saved by works, what are we going to say to that? No way. Nobody teaches that here. Absolutely not. They believe in justification by faith alone. There's no way. No, no one believes that here. Okay. Another legitimate concern would be, and this is how some people use the word legalism. What we mean is, you know, at Compass Bible Church, they're exalting man's rules in the place of God's rules, right? They really, if they emphasize God's rules only, I'm okay with that. 
like going to church and putting money in the offering. And can you imagine? You know, if I just taught what the Bible taught and you don't teach man's rules, then you're fine. But really what it's about, it's about you know, playing cards or going to movies. Right? Then they'll say, well, that's legalism. Now, is there a place of, of that error in the Bible? Sure. Mark chapter 7. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? And he said, here's why, verse 7, because you're teaching as doctrines, right? These things that, you, that you're teaching, uh, like they're God's doctrines, the teachings of the Bible, as the commandments of men. You're exalting the traditions of people and you're making them commands. Uh, you leave the commandment of God, you go away from it, and you hold to the traditions of men. In other words, I'm godly, right? And some people grew up this way. If I don't play cards and don't go to the movies, right? And, and if, uh, you know, my, my wife's uh, dress is long enough, uh, but you know what? It doesn't matter, really. No one's really asking her if she's reading her Bible or if I'm sharing my faith or if I'm giving, you know, as the Bible tells me I must. Think about that. Right? That would be legalism. If you want to use the word legalism, although I wouldn't use it, I would say what God said, you're taking the traditions of men and exalting them and giving them divine authority, which they don't have. You want to call that legalism? That's fine. But again, I would say, where in the world, when we're charged with legalism about sanctification, where in the world are we exalting the traditions of men as the commandments of God? We don't. So I rebuff those charges, even though I hear them, I don't know, monthly probably. What people usually mean is this, don't tell me I have to obey God. <laughs> you know why I left that Bible study, that James Bible study? Because they, they kept pushing me to obey God, and I didn't want to do that. Oh, okay. Well, then why don't you say that, right? Because when you say legalism, that's kind of like calling someone a racist, or, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the argument-ending statement, right? You guys are legalists, so I'm done. I don't need to say anything else. I just dropped the mic because you're a legalist. And I'm saying, just define what you mean. Are you saying that we're teaching you to get saved by works? I'm not saying that. Are you saying that the traditions of men are the, the, the authoritative commands of God? I'm not saying that. Um, then what are you saying? And I think if you pressed a lot of people, they'd say, well, I just don't like you telling me I got to do what God says that we got to do. Because God says you got to do it. But I don't like you telling me that. Okay, we'll just say it that way at least. First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19. For neither circumcision counts for anything or uncircumcision. I don't care about your foreskin. Oh, certainly, I don't care about your foreskin. I don't care about your foreskin. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not. I know the Jews think it's a big deal to be circumcised. He says, that doesn't matter. But what matters is, what counts is, the keeping of the commandments of God. That's what the writer of Romans chapter 4 says to the Corinthians. You better keep the commandments of God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. The Apostle John says, and by this we know we've come to know him. You think you're a Christian, you know God, if we keep his commandments, right? You go out there and take a knee when some guy drops from cardiac arrest on the field and you're praying to God and using Jesus' name, right? And then you get up and say, I'm going to go party or do whatever I want. I don't care what God's rules are, right? Then I'm saying, right, you don't know God. You're not even trying to know God because knowing God is drawing near to a holy God and changing your behavior accordingly. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Even the demons believe, but they don't do what he says. And a lot of people, if they say, well, who are you going to pray to if there's a crisis? Well, I'm praying to God in Jesus' name. Well, that's great, but it doesn't mean that you're a Christian. Jesus himself said it. John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So that's not legalism. It can be charged legalism when we're sitting here really spurring one another on, keeping each other accountable, praying for each other to obey the Bible. But that is not legalism. Okay? Well, it's, it's not in, in keeping with grace. Well, 
Grace is not opposed to keeping God's rules. Matter of fact, grace and God's rules go together. Well, I believe in grace. And a lot of Crossway authors, a lot of people out there really pushing this grace. Tullian Tavigian wrote a whole book on it before he flamed out, all about how, you know, it's all about grace. You got all these authors talking about grace, 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 which means don't tell me what to do. Right? They'll write parenting books about is you should teach your kids grace. Give them a grace and don't tell them what to do. Right? You got to tell them what to do even before they're Christians because the book of Proverbs says that's how we train children. And then you become a Christian. Guess what? Now God has empowered you from the inside to love God. And he's saying work, 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 work. And the spirit of God right, works with you and you become increasingly holy. That's what grace does. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people, all kinds of people, right? Not all people without exception, but all people without distinction, everyone around the world, all kinds of people. Training us. What does grace do? Look at this word. It's a great verb. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now, if I get up and start preaching about you need to be trained to renounce your ungodliness, renounce your worldly passions, live self-controlled and upright and godly, people are going to go, legalist, right? Say, wait a minute. That's what grace says. That's what grace does. God's grace has appeared and it trains us to do that. I'm not buying the legalism charge. The moral law is essential. Why? Because it shows us the holy path. The rules show us where to walk. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Here's the imagery of walking, taking steps. Of course, Christian life isn't about walking. You can be a paraplegic and never walk. You could have no legs and it's not about walking. But that's a picture of living the Christian life, about living a godly life. And what, how do I know where to step? The Bible. I have sworn an oath and, and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. The rules of the Bible show me where to go. The rules of the Bible take me in the right direction. So the Bible is the means to show me that, and so the rules show us the holy path. Why are those moral laws essential? Because I can't even know what it means to be Christ-like without those laws. I just can't. I need the, I need the lights on the runway. This is a great passage here. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The rules of the Lord are true. They're righteous altogether. The picture of God's rules are good. And you ask the average person, right, those with comics, I think, depict it so well, who thinks I'm good with God because I believe in Jesus and I believe in grace, right? You start saying stuff like this. We love the rules of God. Legalists, they'll charge you with legalism. It's not legalism. You don't even know what legalism is, right? Turn me to the legalist passage. What are you talking about? All right, getting exercised about this. Moral law upheld in the New Testament all over the place. I just quoted for you 1 Corinthians 7.19. Don't need to repeat it, but there it is. Commandments of God. That's what counts. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? What's that? This passage about paying your pastors. Right? Does not the law say the same thing? Well, what does it say? For it is written in the law of Moses. You shall not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. Well, that's a passage about oxen. No, he says, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Well, it seems to be about oxen. Well, it's not ultimately about ox oxen. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake. So here's a law about feeding your ox while he's running this thing around in a circle with this huge pylon on his shoulders, and he's treading out the grain. And as he's treading out the grain with the millstone and the big stick, this big pole, you're not supposed to put a muzzle on him so he don't eat the grain that he's grinding up. No, you shouldn't muzzle the ox. He should be able to eat from the grain that he's threshing. Right? That, that, that's the picture, grinding. 
And the point is that principle, you should be able to read the Bible and find the moral imperative there. And the moral imperative is that someone is working and they're worthy of their wage. They work hard, they should get paid. And he's just applying that to the church in this regard because they were thinking, well, you're a missionary, you're not charging people. Why should we pay our pastors? That's not the topic of my sermon, but the point is here, he's saying that is a moral essential for us. And it's there in the Old Testament law. So does he not Does he try to detach himself from the Old Testament, to use Andy Stanley's term? No, of course not. The Old Testament needs to be studied so that I can know how to live life, so I can know what it is to live a godly, hagios, hagiodzoed life. Understand the ceremonial distinction, which, of course, I've already made that point in 1 Corinthians 7, but let's look at it in 1 Corinthians 9. To the Jew, I became a Jew in order I might win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though uh, not myself being under the law. Right? that I might win those under the law. To those that are outside the law, I became as one outside the law, though not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So this particular passage right here reminds us of when Paul gets Timothy circumcised, which we studied not long ago in Acts chapter 16, and yet he writes Galatians and says, if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ is of no value to you. How can he circumcise Timothy and then tell other people not to circumcise themselves? Because the circumcision is for them saying, if I'm circumcised here and keep the law of Moses, the ceremonial law, then I can be right with God. And here, Timothy is getting circumcised, having, Paul's having him circumcised because he wants to have an opportunity to walk into these synagogues and preach the gospel. The point isn't about the foreskin. The point is about what, are you, what is your motivation here? And the point is that there's a distinction between the moral law and the ceremonial law. And that distinction needs to be clearly made in our minds. And sometimes Paul is saying, I'll submit to some ceremonial laws. We'll see that in Acts 17 where Paul takes a, a vow, or Acts 18, and he's willing to submit himself to certain things for the sake of the people he's, he's ministering to. Moral law is essential. You need to understand the moral law is distinguished from the ceremonial law. Let's talk about the moralism chart. Same idea, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. They'll, this is just a new, this is the new reformed way to say that you've gone too far with the rule stuff. You're moralist. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. He's talking about the Old Testament wanderings and the Israelites, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. They died there. Verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be, become idolaters. Do not be idolaters. As some of them were, as it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They would say, if you preach an Old Testament passage, like the, the wilderness wanderings where Moses is leading the children of Israel around, and you start preaching that from the pulpit and you say things or we're learning something in a Bible study and we're saying, you ought to take the moral example in this passage and you ought to apply it to your life. They're going to say, moralist, moralist. Now that's one step short of legalist. If you mean by that, that's a damning lie that I'm teaching people to be saved by works. But if you say moralist, that's like, well, that's not right. You're trying to teach moral principles from Old Testament passages and they should only be about Christ. They should only be about the cross. That's the charge of moralism. And yet right here in the text, I guarantee you, if this were not inscribed here, if I got up and taught about the way they were idolaters and sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play, and I said, you should not desire evil things like they did, a lot of people from a lot of reform circles are going to stand up and say, you're a moralist. You're just trying to get people to live good lives based on the Old Testament examples. And I'm saying, uh, I'm going to eschew that moral charge because I'm not buying it because that's how the scripture interprets itself. 
right? Is it about Christ? Of course, the whole Bible is about Christ. And ultimately, I can see Christ in these things, but it's more than that. It's also a, a pathway to show us how to live sanctified lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, preaching should not just be the declaration of what God has done. It's about what we now ought to do as Christians. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. That's what preachers should do. Be ready in season and out of season, whether it's applauded or whether it's booed. Rebuke, I'm sorry, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And it's going to be hard sometimes. People aren't going to like it with complete patience and teaching. Teach them line by line. Verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, this doesn't mean they're not claiming Christ. They're claiming Christ. They'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And in our day, that's exactly what's going on in large measure when people say, I want to talk about Christianity. I want to teach the Bible, but I want the world to like me as well. So I'm going to change what I think the Bible has said, but now I'm going to think the Bible says something else because I want to adapt to my culture, uh, but I don't want to conform people to what is found in the Bible. All right, here's one you're going to hit for sure. That is the charge. Hey, this is all about doing it in your own strength. I hear people say this all the time. Even in our church, they can't get away from this. They say, well, I want to pray for you that you don't do it in your own strength. Let's talk about that for a second. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Again, I'm just emphasizing how if you look at a passage like that, I ask the question, hey, Paul, did you feel any of that? Paul, was that hard for you? Paul, was that a struggle? Why are you using metaphors like fighting? Why are you using metaphors like running? That makes me want to vomit, to run, right? It makes the collie kids throw up. I, I, why would you use that? Why don't you use resting? Why don't you use frolicking? Why don't you use laying back? Why don't you just use some other analogy that doesn't have that sense? Well, because your strength is always going to be demanded in sanctification, always. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood, which, by the way, is a rebuke, not a compliment. Right? You're not struggling. This is a great word, by the way, agonizomai in the Greek New Testament. This, this word, we get the word right, agony from it. Right? It translates in the New Testament to fight, to, to struggle, to strive. It's what an athlete does or fought. He fought. Um, I, I can't remember the, which text that is. Fought wild beast in Ephesus, I think is what it is. Agonizomai. This is part of the regular Christian life, struggling. And the book of... James is all about that. I want to talk about the distinction then between positional sanctification and, and, and progressive sanctification. Or the words we like to normally use is if we're going to talk about positional sanctification, we'll use the word justification because the result of justification is immediate positional sanctification. Are you following me on all this? Okay. I want to make the distinction. I want to go back 110 years to J.C. Ryle's book on holiness. And Ryle, again, you can read this book, and, and it, it's, a section, it's a whole set of his uh, sermons. They'll read like they're reading out of today's uh, landscape of Christianity because he's nailing some things that we have a serious problem with today, and we do not distinguish in our minds. So uh, Ryle is so good. Ryle, if anything you get from Ryle, you should read. Some of you I know read him. Evangelical uh, pastor in England, converted later in life as a student at Oxford, I think, when he became a Christian. But anyway, uh, here's what he says, which I think is very important. Men will persist in confounding, conflating, two things that differ. That is justification, a.k.a. positional sanctification, and sanctification, a.k.a. progressive sanctification. They confound those two. In justification, or positional sanctification, 
The word to be believe, I'm sorry, the word to be addressed to man is believe and only believe. Faith alone, justified by faith alone, right? In sanctification, positional, I'm sorry, progressive sanctification, the word must be watch and pray and fight. What God has divided, what he's distinguished, let us not mingle and confuse. This is the first sermon out of the gate in the book that is transcribed from his preaching and doctored up a little bit and edited by him, uh, holiness. We are conflating something that should not be confused. Here's how he puts it. Strange doctrines have risen up of late upon the whole subject of sanctification. And some appear to confound it, to conflate it, to overlap it, to blur it with justification. Others fritter it away to nothing under the pretense of zeal for free grace. We're living there right now in circles that we interact with in, in larger Christianity outside the walls of this church and sometimes within the walls of this church. Others fritter away to nothing under the pretense of zeal for They're all about free grace, right? And practically, they neglect it altogether. There's no emphasis there. No one's pushing each other in small groups. It's just, it's just not there. Others are so much afraid of works being made a part of justification, right? They don't want to talk about James chapter 2, that they can hardly find a place at all for works in their religion. He said, I'm persuaded that one great cause of the darkness and uncomfortable feelings of many well-meaning people in the matter of religion or Christianity is their habit of conflating, confounding, confusing, and blurring, not distinguishing justification and sanctification. It can never be too strongly impressed upon our minds that these are two separate things and they must be distinguished in our minds. So here's the big picture. Justification, sanctification. What is justification? Legally declared righteous. What is sanctification? Made more righteous in practice. What is justification? A changed status before God instantaneously. What's sanctification? It's a changing life, an ongoing process. Justification is I'm declared righteous, I'm forgiven. Sanctification is I'm growing. There is the picture of the basic distinguishing between these two things, and it has been conflated on purpose, largely for a younger generation, so that they can put their feet up on the dashboard, set it on cruise control, and say, the Christian life isn't going to be work for me. It's going to be basking in the finished work of Christ. I rest in the finished work of Christ for my justification. But you'd better lean up, you better pedal hard, and you better work at your sanctification, because that's what the book of James and the rest of the New Testament tells us to do. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 Verses 1 through 4, I just want to show you some distinctions here. Finally, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, walk is the pattern, it's the sanctification process, just as you are doing so that you may do so more and more, increasing sanctification. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And the topic on the table here is that you may abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So here's a picture, and I just want to look at this passage phrase by phrase and distinguish it. He says how you ought to walk. What are we talking about? Ongoing manner of life. Peripateo, this Greek word peripateo means to continue to walk. It's a literal word about walking, one foot in front of the other, but it represents this picture of walking through the Christian life, which is my ongoing behavior as a Christian. Okay? How does that distinguish from justification? Well, justification is a point of time. It's not a process. I don't become a Christian over time. Your non-Christian neighbor thinks you become a Christian over time. You become a Christian instantaneously. Right? But your sanctification is an ongoing matter of life. As you walk, peripateo, to please God. Well, works please God. The Bible is very clear about that. Works please God. Psalm 11:7. It is a pleasing thing to God for us to do good works. And he says that. You're pleasing God. We want you to please God more and more. Justification, 
We can't please God. I can't come to God and say, look at me, aren't I good, accept me. Works are like filthy rags. They're not a part of it. I'm not saved by works, lest anyone should boast. So works don't please God in my justification. Works do please God as a child of God in my sanctification. The next phrase, and do so more and more. I can please God in my sanctification, studying the book of James, moving forward, pleasing Him more by more, incrementally moving in a direction of greater pleasing. The Father can look at me, a child of God, and say, I'm more and more pleased. I'm I'm more pleased with Him this year than I was last year. That's the process of sanctification. Justification, can't have more acceptance, can't be more love, can't be more in the family. Now again, you can can read a book, and there are plenty of them out there right now being published, where they're saying, look at that truth of being accepted in Christ. I'm accepted in the beloved. It's that picture of the guy behind the cutout of Jesus drinking his beer. You see that picture, right? Getting drunk while saying Jesus is is the one that God sees. That's the the false doctrine of saying, I'm going to look at my sanctification and pretend it's my justification. I'm going to consider that my progressive sanctification is really nothing more than my positional sanctification. And that's a problem. That's not right. That's heresy. He says this, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Again, this is a picture if it's about my ongoing peripatel, my walk with God, and in pleasing God more and more. We know this is about being set apart from sin increasingly. Justification, set apart as God's instantaneously. That's the whole concept of positional sanctification or justification, being set apart. The next phrase, how to control his own body in holiness. How to control his own body. How to control his own body in holiness. Do you get that? Do you think there's some synergism here? We are told to set ourselves apart from sin. We're never told, hey, just sit back and somehow you'll be magically set apart from sin. Will God work in you? Yes, as you will, as God wills to work for his good pleasure, it starts with work out your salvation. Sanctification is something we're told to do. So here are people, how many get sanctified? Control your own body. Control your own body. We're told to set ourselves apart. How does justification work? God sets us apart. God does all the work and sets us apart as His, instantaneously, momentarily, at the moment of our repentance and faith. That picture, that distinction right there, is the distinction that we have to think through, and it's illustrated so clearly in this right-hand column in passages, like in the book of James, or in, I just use as an example, 1 Thessalonians 4, that's completely different. We are not talking about our justification. Implications when you hear preaching, you can hear a lot of it throughout the book of James. Take a look at what he says here. Finally, brothers, we ask you, we urge you in the Lord Jesus received how you ought to walk. We just read all that. Look at verse five now. Not in the passion of lusts like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to, here's the word, right? Hagios, right? Holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. That preaching strategy in verses 5 through 8, taking those truths in verses 1 through 4, right? That's something that helps me understand how this works in this next semester as you hear the book of James taught by our teachers. Okay, we urge and ask you. We already saw these verbs at the front, but let's put these on the, on the chart here. Sanctification, what do we do? We urge people to be sanctified. We ask people to be sanctified. We tell people to do it, to get sanctified. We urge and ask. Justification, we ask them to ask God. Call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. What are we asking? We're asking them to ask God to do something. In preaching, in sanctification, progressive sanctification, we're asking them to do something. And you can see the distinction there. What's the next line? 
that we can learn from. We know, you know what instructions we gave you. Now, the instructions we gave you are very lengthy in the book of First Thessalonians. They're lengthy in the book of James. But when I think about justification, let's start there. What are the instructions regarding justification? Repentance and faith. I repent of my sins. I put my trust in Christ. That's it. Two imperative verbs in the gospel, and they all relate to me responding to what Christ has done. Christ died for sin. The thing he died for, control yourself. Um, not in the passions of lust, verse 5, like the Gentiles. Well, you should deny what feelings you have that make you want to do something, and you say, no, I'm not going to. Uh, Colossians 3, verse 5, put to death whatever remains of your, of your earthy, earthliness, right? The word the flesh, the, your fleshliness, your, your, your fallen passions. D- go to war against it. Abstain from sin, control yourself, deny your passions and lust. The Lord is an avenger, right? He's warned you. So think about what, if I got up and preached to you and said, hey, stop sinning, the Lord is an avenger in these things. You'd say, wow, it's getting heavy. He's, he's, he's making me try to be afraid of God's decision. Well, you should be. Just like when my brother watched me disregard the note on the table after school of what dad told me to do, and I'm acting like I don't care, and my brother looks at me with not a lot of compassion, go, you're going to get it, man. You're going to get it. You're going to get it big. Right? What he's trying to do for me, not out of love, I, would, I doubt, but he's trying to get me to be afraid of my dad. And why would I be afraid of my dad? Because he's going to cast me into hell? Because he's going to put me into outer darkness? No, but because yeah, I'm going to be disciplined by him. And so he's warning them. I've warned you. I've, I've solemnly warned you. God is going to gonna be an avenger. You start breaking his rules, there's going to be penalties here. So that's what sanctification, it involves that. It calls to abstain from sin. Instructions to control yourself. Instructions to deny your passions and lusts. Instructions to fear God's discipline. Here's the next line in verse 7. God has not called us to impurity. So I need to think, when I became a Christian, I became a child of God, a saint set apart, now he's saying, think about who you are. Think about what you're supposed to be, right? So what are the instructions? Part of it is you need to recall what God has commanded you to do. Recall, recall in your mind what he's commanded you to be. So there's a lot of that in your preaching, although that is just a part of it. Telling people to stop sinning, telling people to control themselves, deny your passions, fear God, recall God's commands. Whoever disregards this disregards God. That's pretty heavy, right? Whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. That picture right there is setting an onus. There's a good word, an obligation upon you. Uh, When Paul says, we're not a debtor according to the flesh, right? The logical implication here then, and you'll see it in context, is you're a debtor to God's spirit. You have an obligation to do what's right. You're his kid. So that's the picture of preaching. You're going to feel that. And when you feel these things, look at the chart here. Abstaining from sin, control yourself, deny your passions, fear God, recall God's commandments, feel the obligation. If you start calling the preachers and men's Bible studies legalist or moralist, right, you've missed the point. You're just trying to squirm out of the conviction of the rebuking and reproving and the instructing that God, the exhortation that God is trying to give you through the preachers of the book of James. That's all I had to say. In homiletics class, I have to talk about the conclusions. And I talk about, if you're a preacher, you should see it as kind of a, a, a landing into the airport, right? A nice, gentle descent into the airport, right? And, and I say one of the problems, a lot of preachers, is they try to come down into the conclusion of the sermon, and they touch the runway, and then they take off again, <laughs> right? 
So that's the touch and go homiletical conclusion. But then the one you just witnessed was the crash landing. <laughs> Pastor Mike is preaching along and then just bam, he just ended and shut this laptop and said, that's, what, that's all I got to say. So uh, there's a good illustration of some bad preaching for you. All right, let me pray for you and then uh, we'll let someone come up and talk to you or whatever. What do we, what, whatever we do next, someone knows. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the book of James, so much to learn as we think and look forward to what's happening uh, in the book of James that is going to be there for us like a uh, platter of, of food for us to taste and see the goodness of your rules and the greatness of your commands. Just like Psalm 119 says repeatedly and Psalm 19 says, we want to love your righteous rules and we want to learn more of them and the implications of them as we see our teachers and preachers get up here in men's Bible study and teach it. So God, please uh, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Let us be receptive uh, to the good things that you want to teach us, the things you want to exhort and rebuke and and reprove in our own lives. So uh, we commit ourselves just to be good learners and good uh, listeners and responsive. And in our small groups, as we try to help each other and, and encourage each other and point out the deceitfulness of sin, I pray we'd be uh, patient and, 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 and open and receptive to the kind of stuff that goes on in small groups that's for good, even though uh, we may struggle with it a bit. It may sting as we're uh, spurred on to love and good deeds in our small groups. But I pray it be a great semester. Make it the best semester we've ever had in men's Bible study learning from your word. In Jesus' name, amen.